days to come. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. Um, Over the next weeks, we're going to be taking a brief tour through the Gospel of Luke. We're not going to um, do a verse-by-verse exposition of this book, neither are we doing sort of a a survey of just a one-time look at it. We're going to take several weeks to um, evaluate and examine this wonderful Gospel. Uh, It's important for us to remember that the Gospels, as they were written, have a really a twofold purpose. One of their purposes was to communicate the truth and the message of the life of Jesus Christ to unbelievers. For those who had never heard uh, about Jesus, those who had never heard the gospel, for them to hear the accounts and the, the teaching and the life of Jesus Christ. But there's a second purpose, and this is really what we'll see a little bit of this morning in our introduction, that the purpose of the Gospels was to affirm and confirm for those who had trusted Christ as their Savior the validity of the accounts, the validity of who Jesus was and what He had done. Luke is going to do this. I want you to just quickly look with me in the first verses of of this Gospel As Luke writes, he says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely surely believed among us. Now let me pause there a minute. He is saying that there are those who have written down their memories and their experiences, their accounts of their eyewitness experience with Jesus Christ. Now be very careful in our world today. There are a lot of things that will say this is a gospel but they are not the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are gospels that were written by uh, people who believed very different things about a century or two later. So just because it has a gospel in front of it, don't think that's what Luke is talking about. But he said there are many who have written these things down, and because they have, verse 2, even as they, the apostles, delivered them to us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. One of the key elements of a true apostle was to be an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, to have personally experienced what took place, to have seen him, as John will say, to have seen him, to have touched him, to have experienced him personally. And so Luke is saying, we heard these things from eyewitnesses. This is not second and third hand accounts. These are first hand accounts. In verse 3 it said, it seemed good to me also having had perfect or complete understanding of all things from the very first. Luke apparently was one of the early believers. We don't find his name till later in the book of Acts when he joins Paul in his ministry. But Luke says from the very start, I had a full understanding of what these things were, of the life and the ministry and the work of Jesus Christ. He said, I thought it from the very first to write unto thee in order... Most excellent Theophilus. We don't know exactly who Theophilus was. We don't know if it was a specific individual or the name means God lover or lover of God. So it may have been writing to Christians in general. He says that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. The purpose of Luke's gospel is to affirm for Theophilus and for other God lovers, for those who have been instructed in the gospel, for us to have confirmed in us, here is the eyewitness testimony of what happened in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. The death, the burial, the resurrection, the message of the gospel. Why is that so important? 
Why are these events essential and important to us? You see, Christianity is unique among world religions in this. Other religions are based upon the teaching of certain individuals, what they said, revelations that were given to them, what they wrote down. But Christianity and the Christian faith is not based, listen to me carefully, it's not based on the words and teachings of Jesus. I am not saved because I obey the, the great commandment, or I am not saved because I keep the teachings of Jesus. Now, do we follow the teachings of Jesus? Absolutely. But what matters for my salvation is, is Jesus who he claimed to be, and did he do what, they, what he supposedly did and what he did? That's the question. It's the works. It's the actions. Was Jesus the Son of God, and did Jesus die and rose again? You see, it's actual historical events that matter. Now, certainly, we read the teachings and we follow the teachings of Jesus, but there could be great teachings of Jesus that would be pointless and would just be more good advice and good counsel if He is not the Son of God and if He did not actually go to a cross and die and three days later rise again from the dead. If He's not God, what is, what's the point? And if He didn't die for our sins, if these things, if these events didn't actually happen, so Luke says, I found it important, I thought it was important to write down in order an orderly account of these things. And he says, we got this from eyewitnesses. I mean, just pause a minute and say that it is incredible. And I'm not the only one that feels this way. I think I'm in pretty good company. There are some secular historians, ancient historians, who will say that it, uh, one British um, historian made the statement several years ago that we are so quick to accept other ancient histories and accounts, and we don't give the same credibility, we don't give the same acceptance to the historical accounts of the New Testament. Other historical accounts were written hundreds of years later by people that were not eyewitnesses, and they'll say, oh, we accept that this is what happened, and yet the Gospels were written within a lifetime of Jesus's life and ministry by people who actually were there. And they say, well, we're not sure this is accurate. We're not willing to accept this as a historical account. And so Luke says, look, this was people who actually saw these things happen. And throughout this book, if you read through the Gospel of Luke, you're going to find specific events, specific thoughts, specific things that were said that only an eyewitness could have heard or know. Perfect example will be our text in just a moment, down later in chapter 1, when the angel appears to Mary to tell her that she is going to conceive by the Holy Spirit the Son of God. There are only two beings present at that moment. There's an angel and there's Mary. The only reason we could possibly know what was said in that moment is if the person who was the eyewitness, there's only one eyewitness and it's Mary. At some point, Mary personally conveyed to Luke and to others, this is what happened. In Luke chapter 2, it'll say Mary pondered these things in her heart. Who is the only person that would know what Mary was thinking about in her heart? Mary. Mary is the one that experienced it. Mary's the one that saw it. So throughout the gospel of Luke, Luke is going to evidence these are things that actually happened. And so he presents this account 
As we look through this, Luke will answer the question for us and for those who might ask, what is so special about Jesus? What is it that is unique about Jesus? How is Jesus different from any other religious leader, from any other famous person in this world? And then he'll tell us why that's important. You may think, well, you know, hey, I know Jesus. I'm not asking that question. I'm not trying to figure out what's special about him. There are those in our world who are. There are those who will say that Jesus was a great teacher. They'll say Jesus was a good man. But they won't accept him as the Son of God. They won't accept him as the Savior for the world. So I want you to see as we will take some time to go through this book and we're going to look at several things that tell us that Jesus is distinct and unique from any other person who has ever lived. We'll look this morning at his virgin birth, that Jesus was born of a virgin, distinct and unique, never happened before, hasn't happened since. We'll look at his virtuous life. There is only one person who has ever lived in this world who did not sin, and that is Jesus Christ. He is different from anybody else. Now, I know some of y'all are some good folks, y'all good people. And you may think you're close to being perfect. But all you got to do is look at your spouse because they've shaken their head. I can see. Or maybe they're saying that for themselves. They're not saying it about. We're not perfect. No one has ever been perfect except Jesus. Jesus is distinct and unique in his vicarious death that he died in the place. No one else has ever died for the sins of the world. People have died for good causes. People have died for other people, but no one except Jesus Christ has died for the sins of this world. Jesus is unique in his victorious resurrection. Three days after he was put into the grave, Jesus came forth alive. Now, there have been other people who were raised by the power of God. There have been other people that were raised by Jesus, but no one else has ever raised themselves from the dead except Jesus Christ. Luke will also tell us, and we'll see this in a few weeks, that Jesus is unique. Jesus is special because of his visible return. He is coming again. And I'm looking forward to that day, that blessed hope of the church. But I want you to look further down into chapter 1, and I want you to see quickly this morning the truth. What is so unique, what is so special about Jesus, his virgin birth? Look with me in verse 26. I'm not going to read these entire section, this entire section of verses. In the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shall bring forth a son, and call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Drop down to verse 37. After he tells all that is going to take place, the Holy Ghost is going to come upon you and overshadow you, and the holy thing that will be born is the Son of God. Verse 37, for with God nothing shall be impossible. 
Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. The angel departed from her. In all of human history, people, beings have been brought into this creation in a variety of ways. There has been a man born or a being brought into existence without the agency of a man and a woman. God scooped up the dust of the earth and breathed into Adam's nostrils and he breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living soul. There has been a being brought into this universe, into this creation, by the agency of a man without a woman. God took a rib from Adam, a man, and created Eve, a woman. There have been millions and billions of people, everyone since, that have come into this world as the result of a man and a woman, but there had never in human history, before or since, been a being brought into this world by the agency of a woman without the agency of a man. And that is what is unique about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. The power of God to bring Jesus, this was a unique and a special way to remind us to show that there is no one like Jesus Christ. Now there are those who will say, well, it's not, it's not all that important for us to believe in the virgin birth. There are those who deny this doctrine, this deny this teaching. Is it important? Is it essential? Why is it important? Well, there's a number of reasons. One, one is the prophecy that was fulfilled. In Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, Behold, I will give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. The prophecy that was given. So it's important for the inerrancy of Scripture for us to understand the teaching of the Word of God that God's promises, God's prophecy will be fulfilled. It was important because of the sin nature, because of the human sin nature that was passed from one father to the child, because of the human nature. We are born because of sin entered into this world through Adam. Every single person is born with the nature that is prone to sin. But Jesus Christ did not receive that because his father was not an earthly father. There's another important reason for this, and we find this in the book of Jeremiah. God tells Jeremiah, he said, I want you to go to the house of Jeconiah, the king of Judah. And he says, because of his wickedness, this man is so vile, this man is so wicked, that I want you to tell him that there will not be any of his descendants that will sit upon the throne. This was literally true in Jeconiah's life. There's a king that follows him from Judah before Babylon comes and takes him into captivity. But it's his uncle, it's not his son. And he is the last of the kings. But he also says there will never sit upon the throne of David. Did you see in this promise from the angel? He shall be great. He shall, the Lord God shall give to him the throne of his father David. Part of the promise of the Messiah was that the Messiah, the king, would sit and reign upon the throne of David eternally. The promise given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when the Davidic covenant is made, that there will be an eternal throne for David's descendants. And Jeconiah brings upon himself this curse. And what about Jesus? We go to Matthew chapter 1, and if you follow his lineage, Jesus is a descendant of Jeconiah through Joseph. But that's the legal standing in this world's eyes. In this virgin birth, Jesus does, God does something so amazing and so profound. And as we think about this this morning, I want you to see two clear, important truths 
Because we could talk about the, the teachings and the doctrine. And let me just say, people will, people will often say, there's, there's generally, um, not in this crowd, but in some crowds that I've preached to, there's some smart alecks. I know not, this is not any of y'all. And they'll say a couple of things. One of the things they'll say is, well, uh, you know, theology, doctrine. Let me tell you, first of all, theology is simply biblical truth about God. Does that seem important to you? What the Bible, what God says about himself? I think that's pretty important. And then they'll say things like, well, I don't think that's all that important. I, you know, let me tell you that theology is important and it's practical. And I, I want you to see a truth in this, this morning that is conveyed by the virgin birth of Christ. The virgin birth of Christ is important for our understanding of Scripture, that the Scriptures will be fulfilled, that God's promises will be fulfilled. The virgin birth of Christ is important because of the humanity and the deity of Christ, that He is both man and God, and that is essential. It's important for our understanding of salvation by grace, that our salvation, that the work of redemption is through, it is the work of God alone, it is by grace. Man has nothing to do with it. And Jesus Christ was God, and that's important. But what is it, what is the truth, what does that mean for me? I want you to see two clear truths that the virgin birth of Christ reminds us of. First of all, it reminds us that nothing can stop God's purpose. Nothing can thwart the plan of God. The virgin birth of Christ deals with three very important three very important problems. One is the fulfillment of prophecy. This prophecy is given in Isaiah chapter 7, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. When he says, I will give you a sign, I'm going to give you something spectacular. That's a pretty big sign. Can you imagine the people that heard that promise? The people that read that promise? Many of them probably did what people do today. Well, that's probably not what it means. Can I just say that God means what He says and says what He means? When God promised that a virgin would conceive, that's exactly what He meant. And the virgin birth of Christ answers that and fulfills that prophecy. It solves the problem of, of the curse of Jeconiah. I can almost imagine Satan thinking, ha ha, I've stopped. God said that a descendant of David would sit on the throne and I've drawn Jeconiah into such wickedness and he's made such evil choices that there will never, God said there will never be one of his descendants on the throne. And yet God was working. You see, there's two lineages of, Dave, of Jesus that are given in Scripture. The one in Matthew follows through Joseph and that is the line of Jeconiah. But when we come to the Gospel of Luke, there's a second one that traces through the line of Mary. Mary is also a descendant of David, but she comes from a different line than that of Jeconiah. So she is still the fulfillment. Jesus is still, through Mary, the fulfillment of the promise of, Jesus, of God that the Messiah, the, the eternal son of David, would be a descendant of David. The Messiah would be a descendant of David. And he fulfills that promise. It's almost, I shared in Sunday school this morning, when I was a kid, my brother and I would play chess. Now, I've never been a great chess player, um, so please don't come up challenging me afterwards. Oh, I'd love to play you in chess. Yeah, you probably would. 
If you've never beaten anybody in a game of chess before in your life, if you don't know how to play, you probably would still win, so you would want to. My mind sort of ran a couple of steps at a time. My brothers, I think, ran about 17 at a time. And he would make a move, and he would draw me out, and I would make that move, and I would think, I'm safe. And I would get to the point, I'd almost be, I would think, one more move, and I've got checkmate. One more move, and I'm going to win. And I think there's times where maybe Satan does that. He, he gets Jeconiah into wickedness, and he tempts him into wickedness, and he thinks, aha, I've got this. And God moves his, God moves his bishop of a virgin birth and says, checkmate. Just when Satan thinks he's about to win, God reminds him that nothing is going to change the end of the game. There may be different moves, there may be multiple choices and different moves, but nothing is going to stop the purpose of God. What God starts, He will finish. What God begins, He will finish. This is exactly what this reminds us of, and it takes... It takes the problem of the sin nature that Jesus Christ, our Savior, would be perfect, not only in His choices, but in His nature. Why? Because it would take the pure, sinless Lamb of God to be the provided sacrifice for our sins. And so God, as He does this, look, nothing's going to change. Satan had his machinations. Satan had his purposes, his plans. Man has made multiple wrong choices. Man chose to crucify Jesus. And it wasn't contrary to the plan of God. It was the plan of God. God did not determine and force them to sin. They chose to sin. But in that wrong choice, nothing changed God's purpose and plan. What he began before eternity, when the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, was going to be finished, and nothing was going to stop that. What God starts, he will finish. And let me tell you that that is true in our lives. That is true for us personally and individually. He who began a good work in you, Philippians 1.6 will continue it until the day of redemption. What God started in your life the day He saved you, He will finish. There may be times in your life when you just don't know how, how am I going to get through this? Is God still at work? Is this still, what's going to be the end result of this? I want to remind you that what God starts, He will finish. Facing the challenge of, a, of, of trying to get victory over sin, how many of y'all have sinned since you've been saved? Let me see your hand. The rest of you can now raise them because you just lied. <laughs> Let me ask you this. How many of you have committed the same sin more than once since you've been saved? We've got a little bit of a problem, don't we? We're not going to get ourselves there, but he that began the good work is the one that's going to get us there. He is the one that has started it. And what begins in grace, you go throughout Scripture, and what begins in grace will always end in glory. What he starts, he'll finish. God's purpose is not going to be changed. God's purpose is not going to be stopped in any way. That's true not only for us as individuals. 
It's true for nations. I know a lot of people that are so disturbed, and I think rightfully so, by the direction of our country and our world. But you remember what God said in Daniel? I'm the one that sets up kings and takes them down. I'm the one that's in charge of this world. There are those who are burdened and depressed and disturbed about the direction that we are headed in. And let me tell you, there's plenty of reason for us as believers to not like the direction we're headed in. But you know what? That doesn't doesn't bother me a bit because what God starts, He's going to finish. And let me just say that whether it's our situation in the United States, it doesn't matter whether it's Washington or the UN or Moscow, Mr. Putin is not in charge of this world. Mr. Biden is not in charge of this world. Congress is not in charge. God is the one who is in control. And what he starts, he will finish. And if you're not sure how he finishes, go over to the end of the book of Revelation. And it's going to end with a complete and perfect restoration of this entire creation to God's originally divine intent. And it turns out pretty good. You should read it for yourself sometime. What God starts, He will finish. Nothing's going to change His purpose. Let me just say for us as a church and as the church in general, I see nearly every day, certainly every week, people who are concerned about the church. And there's reasons for that. Let me tell you that the church in general and the church specifically in America has got its issues and its problems. We do some things wrong. We get messed up at times. We got wrong focuses. We got wrong ideas. And some people just seem to love to point that out. And I hear this frequently. Man, I sure would. If the church could just get back to 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 the first century church, if we could just get back to the New Testament church, boy, things would be great. Really? Have you read the book of New Testament? Every single epistle in the New Testament was written to correct a problem in the church. You read the book of Acts. You don't get very far until what do you have? You've got God having to kill people because they really are bad church members. Aren't you glad he doesn't do that as much now? You get to chapter 6, and you've got the the old crowd and the newer crowd fighting. In our day, crowds in the church have fought over music. We've fought over versions of the Bible. We've fought over all sorts of things. You know, they were fighting over who got the most soup. They They were fighting over who got to be first in line at the church dinner. Wednesday night. Fellowship. Ice cream fellowship. I walk through the door. Somebody comes up to me and says, did you get some of this certain kind of ice cream? I said, no, I just, I just got over here. They said, you should get some. It's really good. This is the last cup. <laughs> Felt like I was back in Acts chapter 6. I was ready to fight. 
If you got the last cup of ice cream, please don't tell me how great it is. Point me to some good ice cream that's still there. But the church had problems. The church has problems today. There's the concern about, oh, what's the future hold? Let me tell you that the church in years to come may look very different than we see it today. The church today looks very different than what it has in the past. But the church is going to go forward until Christ returns. Jesus isn't going to come back in the rapture and look around and say, well, man, I sure thought we'd find somebody. There will be faith when the Son of Man returns. Now, we certainly understand that it may be in a different way. Let me tell you that the great work of God that's going on in our world today is not taking place in America. It's taking place in persecuted countries and in poor countries and in third world countries and in places where it's dangerous to name the name of Christ. But God's church is going forward. He said, upon this rock... I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what God starts, God will finish. Let me tell you that for us as a church, the burden of our church does not rest on our shoulders. Yes, we do the labor, we share the gospel, we serve, we minister. It takes all of us as a body working together. But if the church will be built, it will be God that builds the church. And he will. And so what God starts, he will finish. The virgin birth reminds me. See, I told you this was a truth that was important. God starts, God finishes. There's a second truth, and this is the reason why God, God's purpose will not be thwarted. That is that nothing can limit God's power. Did you see that promise in verse 37? For with God... Nothing shall be impossible. Will you say that with me? For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Nothing will be impossible. This is what it really all boils down to, isn't it? Do you really believe that nothing is impossible with God? Now, let me pause a minute because there may be a few smart alecks, and there's always that smart aleck that comes up with the question, well, pastor... Do you believe that God can create a rock that's too heavy for himself to lift? I'm sorry, that's not a smart aleck. There's another word, but there's... Bugs Bunny used to say Egypts. You know what an Egypt Egypt is or an Egypt? I get most of my theology and grammar from Bugs Bunny, so y'all just bear with me. We're not talking about, we understand God, there's things that God will not do anything that's contrary to his nature. It is impossible, Hebrews says, for God to lie. So we understand when he says nothing is impossible, we understand the context of what he's saying that in. That God is not going to do anything that's contrary to his created order or according to his things that flow from his nature. He's not going to break his commandments. He's not going to go against his own self. But we're talking about what the virgin birth is evidence. And the angel draws us to that truth in that particular moment. But it is a universal truth to be reminded of that nothing can limit God's power. God is not sitting in the heavens watching the news and wringing his hands. 
God is the one that is in charge. Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? God never asks a question out of a lack of knowledge. God asks a question to teach us a point. There is nothing that is too hard for God. That's why his purpose will never be, in, will never be stopped. Because whatever he starts, he will finish. He has the power to do this. So let me ask you this question this morning. What is it that you're experiencing in your life that seems impossible? There is no burden too heavy for God to carry. There is no problem too difficult for God to solve. There is no sin so great that He is not able to empower us to gain the victory over. There is no sinner that is so lost that God can't save. There may be somebody that you're praying for, and you think, how are they ever possibly going to come to Christ? God said, I am able to save to the uttermost, to the farthest limits. I'm able to save those that believe. What is it in your life that seems... Now listen, I, I understand. None of us are going to verbalize and say, I don't think God can do this. Because we know better than that. We're smart church people. We know, oh, yeah, with God all things are possible. Nothing's impossible with God. But in our heart of hearts, as we pray for things and we begin to wonder and we begin to doubt, is this going to happen? Is God going to answer this prayer? Now, understand that believing does not necessitate that what you're going to ask is going to come to pass. God knows more than we do, so just simply believing God can doesn't mean that God does, but it means that there are no problems, there's nothing too big to ask of our God. He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. I believe that it honors our God when we pray big prayers. When we pray believing that God can and will do. There are prayers, there are people that I am praying for, that I am so burdened for, that I look at their lives and I, I keep hoping this is going to happen and this is going to change them and this is going to bring them to Christ. And, this is gonna, and it seems like the more I pray, the farther they get. And it at times begins to feel like an impossible thing. And we don't always see the path to the possible. But when there is no path to the possible, beyond the, the possible is the impossible, and there is nothing impossible with God. And He is able. His power is beyond our comprehension. I love Mary's response. Did you see that in the text this morning? Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. Mary was taking on what she had no possible way of knowing and what we can't even imagine. The prophecy would say of Mary, a sword shall pierce your soul also. Mary had to stand there and watch her son suffer and die. I can't imagine that. Can't imagine to watch him go through his life and experience all that he did. Mary took upon her the humiliation and the shame of living in a small town, Nazareth, 
with the rumors that would be spread about her. Mary took on all that and she simply says, I will trust the Lord. I'm the handmaid. I'm a servant of the Lord. Be it unto me according to his word. The power of God. There may be somebody here this morning that you're asking the question, can God save me? You'd preacher, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how wicked I've been. This, all this church stuff, that's for good people. No, it is not. Salvation is not for good people. Salvation is those of us who are willing to admit we are not good. So wherever you are, I want you to know that you are not beyond the grace of God. And this morning, right where you are, or you can come down to this altar in the invitation, talk to one of our pastors, talk to myself. We will be glad to let you see from the scriptures and what God says that you can be saved. God is able to save those that believe. Maybe there's a prayer that you've been praying, and you don't see how it's going to work out. You don't see any progress. You don't see any... Let me tell you, nothing is impossible with God. Jesus says that we are to pray, believing that all things are possible. That's how we are to pray. And we pray and we trust and we put things in the hands of God. Maybe this morning you're burdened. Maybe it's something in your own life. Maybe it's something in your family. I say this often, but it's so true. The burdens that we carry for those that we love are often heavier than the burdens we carry for ourselves. And we love and we care about them. And we're praying and we're concerned about their spiritual needs. We're, we're ca- worried about their emotional, the grief that they're carrying. We're, we're burdened for them. And it seems like an impossible burden. God, I can't make it another step further. I can't go on any longer. God's strength, God's power has no limit. And it is by His strength and His power that you take the next step. And you take the next step. And you keep moving forward. What is it that seems impossible? Whatever seems impossible to us is not impossible to our God. Because, say this with me, with God, all things are possible. Say it one more time, with God, all things are possible. Father, I thank you that you are the God of the impossible. And Lord, this truth that our Savior was born in an impossible way. This impossible birth not only distinguishes him from every other person that's ever walked on this planet, it not only provides us with our salvation, Lord, it reminds us of your great power. And Lord, you have done for many of us the impossible. You have redeemed our souls. That was impossible for us, but not for you. Through your virgin-born Son, you have brought salvation. I pray this morning for your people, Lord, those that are carrying such heavy burdens that in their, they are losing hope because things seem impossible. Remind them this morning that with you nothing is impossible. We pray.